Hi, friends. Welcome to True Crime Storytime. I'm your host, Ivana Estelle. And wow, it has been a while since I've said that. We were last together in June, and I took the summer off, and there's a couple reasons for that. The first is that I have been working on a new project. I launched a second show called Let Me Humble You, and it is all about self-love, hope, and vulnerability. It's personal pieces, and it's like my light and spiritual side that I get to share. The second is that I wanted to revamp this show. It is my goal to share these cases in the best, most respectful way that I can and balancing this show and another show and just like my mental health, it's a lot. And by that I mean when you're writing and covering these cases, it can be really heavy. Like, I know that there's different versions of true crime shows. There's like the comedic ones, and then there's just like the super like technical ones, super gory ones. And I don't really think I fall in any of those categories because all of them can sometimes I think verge on a bit of exploitative. So for me, I try to come on and just share a case and tell these people's stories because it is always so mind-boggling to me that these were people on earth living life, trying to experience every day the best they could, and their lives were stolen from them. And that's at the core of true crime, and it can't be forgotten. So... For me, the best way to continue this show, because I do love writing, I do really care, and I am so proud of True Crime Storytime, it's to cut back to bi-weekly episodes. And every week, two different shows will come out, both by me, and I think that that way I can continue to do and pursue my passion while also informing you all. So... Thank you so much for those who have stuck by me. Thank you so much to any new listeners here. And I think that's that's it. I think I can get going with this story today. This case, I've taken my time coming around to writing. But it's one that has like had me hooked. And I feel like everyone has that case, right? That one that they cannot let go of. Actually, my real one is the mysterious death of Joseph Smedley. Uh, selfless plug, please check out A Heavyweight. That podcast is so good. Stacey's amazing. But that was when I couldn't get out of my case. I couldn't get out of my head because I was trying to solve it. Like, I didn't understand how he passed away. And as this true crime serial killer season comes to an end, I have to talk about a serial killer that I can't really get out of my head either. And to say I bit off more than I can chew is an understatement. But my research on this serial killer has gone on for years. In fact, I feel like the reason why this serial killer is so prolific 
is because their case leaves so many questions. And they are known as one of the most notorious serial killers in the United States. But for one main reason, being a woman. There have been movies, podcasts, documentaries covering her. And still, the stories seem to be missing something. Each time she's covered, your perspective is somewhat altered. But the curiosity remains the same. This is the case of Eileen Warnos. I want to start by introducing you to Eileen, telling you about her life, and then the first murder. After that, I'm going to break down each victim. Because I feel like with a serial killer this popular, and the way that she's been covered, people kind of know, right? Like, I don't have to add the mystery as to what happens next. But I want you to get to know Eileen and everything that's involved in this case. Because, as you know, we all know how this ends, but it's how we even got to that point that's striking. Eileen Warnos was born on February 29th, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan which is not to be confused with Rochester, New York, two places of which I have never been. Eileen's family was poverty-stricken, to say the least. She grew up in the nearby town of Troy. Now, Troy today is pretty popular. The city is home to about 88,000 people, and it's known for its large Protestant churches and being very historical. There are plenty of parks and a mall that every teen frequents, Uh, You've got your Kmart and CVS, and people as of 2018 were making money there. The average household income is about $96,000, which honestly for that location is pretty good. Also, it seemingly is diverse. It's about 46% Caucasian, and then there's a mixture of other races, including Black, Asian, and Hispanic. Most people are married, and on Wikipedia, you will literally find a woman named Ivana Milsevic listed under notable people, along with a few athletes and musicians. But you won't find Eileen Warnos, which surprised me to the point that I thought I was researching the wrong Troy. But maybe it's because Eileen's upbringing paints a different picture of Troy. See... Eileen's father was a convicted sex offender. He was out of the picture long before Eileen was even born. In fact, she didn't know much about him, but that he committed suicide when she was 13 years old in his prison cell. Her mother was named Diane, and she was a Finnish immigrant. She was 14 years old when she married Eileen's biological father, Leo Pittman, who was 18 at the time. Now, this was back in 1954, and a year later, Diane, at the age of 15, gave birth to Eileen's older brother, Keith. After about two years of marriage, Leo and Diane divorced. Diane was also 16 and pregnant at this time, leaving her a single mother to two children, all while being under the age of 18. Leo would later be sentenced to life in prison for kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old girl. Around this time, he was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and ultimately committed suicide in 1969. 
Now, when Eileen was just four years old and her brother was five, Diane abandoned them. She left them with their grandparents. Now, of course, it's easy to say why leave your kids four and five, but that would have made Diane about like 19 or 20 at the time. The first half of her life was full of abuse at the hands of Leo. She became a wife as a child herself and a mother early. It was literally a recipe for a bad situation and just trauma upon trauma. Eileen and Keith were left with their grandparents, Lori and Britta. And life was actually 10 times worse. Like, have you heard of a series of unfortunate events? Or is it misfortunate events? That book series had me in a chokehold as a kid. But basically, it's about these kids that were like, like a baby, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and they just kept running into more and more messed up situations while running away from their uncle, who I'm pretty sure was named Count Olaf. Anyway, that as a child scared the daylights out of me. But what Eileen went through was way worse and real. Some sources say that the grandparents didn't tell the kids they were adopted, but I'm not sure if Keith and Eileen remembered their mother or didn't remember their mother. Like, it wasn't really clear. Eileen's aunt, Lori, who was a sister to Diana and only a few years older, would talk about Eileen and Keith in the home. Basically, Diane was, like, cut out. When she would send Christmas gifts, the grandparents would hide them so Keith and Eileen knew nothing about him. And to make matters worse, Eileen at one point was being sexually and physically abused by her grandfather. The result of this, Eileen began sex work as early as 11, which, by the way, is not sex work. She was a child, so assault continuously. Eileen was pretty much treated like garbage. Also, she had to fend for herself a lot of the time and would cope by drinking and smoking cigarettes at a very very early age. By 15, Eileen became pregnant. It's not clear who the father of the child was. The options were actually horrific. It was either an older man that took advantage of her or worse, allegations of it being her brother or grandfather. Eileen gave birth to a son who she named Keith, which only fueled more fire to the brother allegations. However, it was her grandfather who forced Eileen to give the baby up for adoption. Now, there are details that have come from Eileen herself that sources call uncooperated, specifically the allegations about she and her brother having a sexual relationship. Eileen has said this is true, while her brother's friends have said it wasn't. What was confirmed, though, was that Eileen was performing sexual acts during her adolescence for boys for food and cigarettes, which I kind of mentioned before. After having the baby, Eileen was kicked out. Her grandmother had also died around this time as well. So the only place Eileen could stay was in the woods in an abandoned car. She'd spend nights with people in exchange for sexual acts. And during this time, Eileen's mental health also began to decline. She had been through so much trauma and suffered from PTSD 
She dropped out of high school after her freshman year and was at the point in her teen years where she was continuing to perform sex work, assault because she's underage, in order to survive. By 1976, Eileen had actually left Michigan and was somewhat of a person living on the move. She'd been arrested multiple times for either sex work or drinking and drug-related charges. And at the time, she was wanted in Colorado for failure to show up to court. Her time in Colorado in general wasn't easy for her. She had a DUI in 74. Um, She also was charged with firing a caliber pistol. And by 1976, with Colorado just not being a good place for her, she ended up hitchhiking to Florida. That's where she met Louis Gratzfell. He was 69 years old at the time, and he was a yacht club president. At the time, Eileen was about 20 years old. Now, to describe what Eileen looked like, most people have seen pictures of her. She had, like, this, like, dirty blonde hair. Um, Her hair was kind of in, like, a mullet shape. She was slender, and she had these really large eyes. She was known for being really energetic and charismatic when she wanted to be. The pair married rather quickly, and they actually printed their marriage announcement in the newspaper. However, even though Eileen was married to someone who had money and seemed to be in a, quote, higher class, she still found herself in trouble in Florida. She would get into fights at bars and was arrested for assault. She also had gotten into altercations with her husband that was really physical, It actually had resulted in them separating, and Lewis put a restraining order on Eileen. That's when she returned to Michigan. Eileen had become more violent from there on out. She was arrested for throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head at some point, and honestly, it just kind of feels like Eileen was really struggling with violence, which who could blame her? I mean, you've been abused since you were maybe eight. And now you're 20 and you're married to the 70-year-old and you've experienced loss after loss. On July 17th, 1976, things took a turn for the worst. Eileen's brother, Keith, died of cancer. And actually due to his life insurance, Eileen received $10,000 literally a week after her marriage to her husband, Louis, was annulled. So... They took a turn for worse because she lost her brother, but then Eileen kind of started living a little bit better. At least for a really brief moment, she was trying to live her best life. She had new money and the annulment, so she was free, and she would spend money on luxuries, like a car and also drugs, which is not a luxury. Her addictions had also grown. See, from 14 to 22, Eileen dealt with depression, among other mental health struggles. She'd attempted suicide six times, one being shooting herself in the stomach. Her life was a pattern of drugs, sex work for money, and survival and repeat. And with the only glimpse of light being maybe a month where she had a little bit of money to, like, not have to feel like she had to survive. I talked a little bit about Eileen's personality, but I want to go back. She was known for being outspoken and hopeful for things to get better. But her struggle with crime and kind of living like a nomad got in the way. 
I know I mentioned Michigan and Florida and how she was always on the go, but she also spent a few times incarcerated. On May 20th, 1981, she was arrested in Edgewater, Florida for armed robbery of a convenience store where she stole about $35 and two packs of cigarettes. She was sentenced to prison on May 4th, 1982 and released on June 30th, 1983. And on May 1st, 1984, Eileen was arrested for attempting to pass forged checks at a bank in Key West. On November 30th, 1985, she was named a suspect in the theft of a revolver and ammunition in Pasco County. Now, personally, actually, I shouldn't say personally. I feel like, okay, that still sounds like personally, doesn't it? Her purchasing weapons feels, appears more like protection. In 1986, Eileen's romantic life actually did take a turn, though. It was a decade after losing her brother, experiencing hardship after hardship, and she was still participating in sex work. Except this time, she met a woman named Tyria Moore, who was 24 years old and a motel cleaning aide. They met in Daytona Beach at a gay bar called Zodiac. Eileen and Tyria relied on each other. They were a couple, and they made money the best way they could. The pair stayed there for a while, and during the duration of Eileen's change from violence to actual murder, which would be a seven-month span in 1989 and 1990, Eileen would go on to murder at least six men across the Florida highways. So I mentioned this before, Eileen is prolific in America for being a serial killer. And what I'm going to do now is go through each person that Eileen murdered, and then how she was caught, her reasoning, and her her eventual arrest. So the bodies of seven men were found and each man seemed to have been robbed and murdered via shooting. They were found on the sides of roads and in junkyards. I know I said at least six men, but emphasis on the word at least. Before I begin this and introduce you to each victim, I do want to take a moment to remember that. The victims. These men were here. They had families and friends, and when they met Eileen, they did not plan on dying that night. I am sharing a lot of Eileen's story because I think that people don't really realize what she went through and kind of only pay attention to the salacious bits of it. Also, I've been covering monster after monster after monster who like didn't even have it half as bad as this person and did grotesque, heinous things. But there needs to be justice for these men too because they did not deserve to die and they didn't deserve to be have their bodies treated how they were after they passed. So the first victim was Richard Mallory. Richard was 51 years old and had actually had his own run-ins with the law. He'd been convicted of rape and had finished a prison term earlier. His body was found on December 13th, 1989. On December 1st, his car was found abandoned, which was strange, since Richard had a life after prison. He'd worked in electronics, and he was attempting to turn his life around. So 12 days later, to be found a few miles away, wrapped in a carpet with three bullet holes in his body, was obviously proven to be a homicide. But police couldn't figure out who did this at the time. 
It seemed like a robbery, but why was he pulled over? Like, who was in the car? Who pulled him out of the car? Had they pulled up on the side of him? Was this planned? Where did the carpet come from? The second victim was 43-year-old David Spears. Now, David was a construction worker in Brandon, Florida. His body was found on a dirt road in Citrus County. This happened to be months later on June 1st, 1990. He was found shot six times without any clothes or possessions. Now, usually I, I break down where murders occur, the locations, but this was up and down Florida highways. As the murders continued, it literally feels like someone was just like driving up and down the streets and going on a murderous rampage, which means that it could have been anyone. It could have been someone that was genuinely just visiting Florida. It could have been someone that was passing through, or it could have been someone that lived in one of the towns off of these highways and was just murdering and then driving back home that same night. There's also the time frame. See, Richard was killed in December, but by June, another murder seemed to happen. And it looked like they could be connected, but with that distance of time, it's hard to tell. A few days after David was found, Charles Edmund Karkskadon, who was 40 at the time and worked for a rodeo, was found in Pasco, in Pasco County. He actually had been shot nine times and his body was wrapped in an electric blanket and was really badly decomposing. This was the first time that we got a glimpse of who could be responsible for this, as witnesses later would say that Eileen was in possession of Charles's car and that she'd also pawned a gun that looked to belong to Charles. A couple months later, on August 4th, 1990, 50-year-old Troy Burris is murdered. Now, he was found badly decomposed as well, so it's not necessarily clear when he was murdered. Troy was a sausage salesman and a family man. He was found in a wooded area in Marion County with two bullet wounds. All the victims that I'm going through this list are between their 40s and 60s. The majority of them, like I mentioned, had families, whether they were married with children or divorced, and they all had seemingly normal jobs. The next victim was Charles Humphreys, who was actually a former police chief and child abuse investigator in the state of Florida. His murder is where police really began to amp up their search. He was 56 years old, and he was found shot six times in Marion County. So whoever they were looking for was narrowing down where they found their victims. Police got a lead when Charles's car was found in Suwanee County, which means a pattern had officially been made. Victims were either found in the woods or on the side of the road, and they were away from their, vic- from their vehicles. And usually they were robbed. They may have had their IDs on them, and sometimes they didn't have any way to be identified. It didn't take long for a lot of their families to know that they were missing, though, and that's how police were able to connect the dots for those who were left without identification. The sixth victim was Walter Antonio. Now, Walter was a part-time security guard and a truck driver, in, and in similar fashion with the other victims, he'd been shot about four times. His body was actually found naked, and his car ended up being found in a different county as well. So, whoever was doing this was murdering these men 
dragging them out of their car, stealing the car for a little bit, and then abandoning the car. For months, police were trying to figure out who was killing these men. But it was on July 4th, 1990. when Eileen and Tyria actually had made their first mistake. See, I know I mentioned a murder happened after that, but they were seen seen driving a man named Peter Seam's car. Now, Peter was a retired merchant seaman, and he left Jupiter, Florida for Arkansas in 1990. However, his car was found in Orange Springs, Florida. This was after the women had gotten into a car accident, There was a witness named Rhonda Bailey who provided a description of the two women at the time. Now, what it's believed is that Peter was on his way to Arkansas and clearly never made it. The women, or Eileen, murdered Peter and we never found his body. So with this information, police began to look through different pawn shops and they found that Peter's items at least, were found in the local area close to where the car was abandoned. Here's where it gets even more tricky. See, Peter's items that had been pawned off, well, eventually they found a fingerprint. And who do you think's fingerprint was already well in the system? Eileen's. It only double-confirmed Rhonda's witness testimony. Now, on January 9, 1991, after months of investigation and searching, police arrested Eileen at the Last Resort Biker Bar in Volusia County, Florida. It was under the pretext of an outside outstanding warrant. They also ended up finding Tyria, but she was in Pittston, Pennsylvania. It isn't clear if she and Eileen had broken up, but police were able to get her to elicit a confession from Eileen in order to have immunity from her from the prosecution. Which is so heartbreaking because regardless, we will never really know Tyria's full involvement in the murders. Like, we know that through phone calls, she was able to get Eileen to confess. But, I mean, I don't know. They put Tyria up in a motel, and that's where she would call Eileen and would just try to get a confession. In these phone calls, Tyria would act up like a storm. She would pretend to be frightened and scared and said that the police were going to pin it all on her. So Eileen kind of felt like she was protecting her ex-girlfriend. After about four days of repeated phone calls, Eileen confessed to several of the murders, but insisted over the phone that the killings had nothing to do with Tyria. And that the reason that she'd even killed in the first place is because she would meet these men and they would end up being an attempted rape. She claimed that the men were soliciting sex and she just merely defended herself. Now, I'm not here to victim blame. I'm not here to put up any positivity on what Eileen did because she murdered at least six people. And there's a person missing. 
most serial killers that I've come across, they were torturing, abusing, and hurting their victims for some sort of sexual gratification. The victims were almost always taken against their will, but in the descriptions, it kind of seems like it's plausible to think that maybe the men did meet Eileen in exchange for sex, and from then they were murdered. We now are living in a world that is beginning to open up more and more, and I'm thankful for that. Sex work is real work, and it is completely your business if you are exchanging sex for payment as long as it is in a healthy and safe and consensual way on both sides. What a person does with their body is 100% their business and their responsibility and up to them. And no one has any room or any, I don't even know what word I would say, tact. Just worry about yourself. But I don't know. No one will know, except for Eileen and her victims, what the exchange was. What brought Eileen to decide to start murdering these men? Of course, there was back and forth on this because some of the victims' families said that that would never happen, that these men would never elicit sex. And again, we don't know. A lot of my research would say that Eileen was not necessarily a dependable narrator. And if that's the case, and Eileen was able to just lure these men and get in their car and murder them, then it paints her out to be a horrific monster. It's all confusing, see? And it was really hard for me when covering this case because you're reading up about this person that's just filled with childhood trauma. And then ends up living a life of survival. The question is, was it a break where it was just she couldn't handle it and began to murder? Was she really defending herself? Tyria and Eileen stayed in touch even after Eileen was incarcerated upon her arrest. And even though she was in prison and had a place to sleep and eat. We all know how the prison system works. It wasn't necessarily a healthy, safe, or good environment for her to be in. Her mental health was deteriorating. And at one point, she was actually adopted by a 44-year-old woman named Arlene Prawl. The woman would try to look out for Eileen as best she could. She would check in on her, but it was a, it was clear that Eileen was suffering She was very vocal about the fact that she thought her food was being contaminated. She would repeatedly go on hunger strikes. And as I said about her mental health, she'd been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Now, when the trial took place, it was actually broken up. They started with Richard Mallory, which is where we learned that he was a prior sex offender. He was the only victim to be found with that kind of background. He himself was also diagnosed as a sociopath. And a lot of the evidence of this was denied in Eileen's trial. This also was when the trial became a trial of public perception. 
they it had seemed to become like a national sensation. Everyone knew Eileen's name. And on March 31st, 1992, Eileen pleaded no contest to the murder of a few of the other victims, Charles Humphreys, Troy Burris, David Spears. She seemed to have taken a more religious turn at this point, and she did confess to Richard Mallory. She said that he did rape her, but that the other men did not. Eileen would go on to have a couple documentaries run around this time about her. There actually was one specific one that was really impressive in the sense that it was very intimate because Eileen was a willing participant. I'm going to talk about that one a little bit later. But back to the trial. For the murder of Richard Mallory, the trial started on January 16, 1992, and Eileen was convicted two weeks later. A month later is when Eileen went on trial for Charles, Troy, and David. All four of these murders, Eileen would eventually be sentenced to death. In June of 1992, Eileen pled guilty to the murder of Charles Carskadon and was given yet another death sentence in November for that crime. Now, here's the thing. For her to be a serial killer, technically her trial for seven different people was over like five months, which seems like such a short amount of time, especially because we know that the physical evidence was just a few fingerprints that was matched with the receipts of Peter, whose body was never found. And so basically all this was based off of Eileen's confessions. I'm not disputing Eileen's guilt. It just kind of seems interesting that her mental health was deteriorating and that they continued to want to give her a death sentence after death sentence. I actually haven't heard of that even being very popular or happening in any other case that I know of. Eileen received six death sentences, and that would also go on to include her pleading guilty to the murder of Walter Antonio. She actually didn't even have murder charges brought against her for Peter, seems, who was the reason why she was even arrested. Eileen would tell inconsistent stories about the killings. She did keep one thing consistent, though, that it was either self-defense or a robbery situation. And after her 1992 conviction, Eileen would stay on death row for about 10 years. She was, con- she was incarcerated at the Florida Department of Corrections, Broward Correctional Institution. She tried to make an appeal to the Supreme Court, but it was denied. And in a 2001 petition to the Florida Supreme Court, she stated that her intention was to dismiss her legal counsel and terminate all pending appeals. She basically would go on to say that she was at the point where she was ready to die and that she did kill all those men and that she was ready for this all to be over. She continued with this belief that her food and belongings were being messed with while in prison and that the conditions of the prison were horrible. They were filled with mold and mildew and low water pressure. There were frequent window checks and it just wasn't healthy or humane. So, in the weeks before her execution, that's when she met with Nick Broomfield. Remember that documentary I mentioned before? The documentary was named after Eileen, and it was about Eileen's life. It was real, honest, raw footage, but it also showed Eileen towards the end of her life, just tormented. She was also the center of this documentary with people from old friends and those that knew her talking about her at one point she and nick also began to get kind of close 
or at least as close as you could get. But towards the end, she was very open about the fact that she was never dealt a good set of cards and no one ever helped her. She even said to Nick, quote, you sabotaged my ass. Society and the cops and system, a raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit. Her final on-camera words were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Don Bodkins, a childhood friend of Eileen's, later told Nick that her verbal abuse was directed at society and the media in general, not at him specifically. Eileen and Nick did not have a positive final conversation, and on October 9, 2002, Eileen Warnos would be executed by lethal injection. She actually declined a last meal. You can have anything under $20, and I guess at that specific correctional facility if you're on death row. I know we've talked about that before, what your last meal will be, or maybe you've had that conversation, like, I don't know, as a weird fucked up icebreaker, but Eileen opted for just a cup of coffee. Her last words were, yes, I would like to just be sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. She died at 9.47 a.m. And she was the second woman in Florida and the 10th in the United States to be executed since the 1976 United States Supreme Court decision restoring capital punishment. After her death, Eileen was cremated. Eileen's ashes were scattered beneath a tree in her native Michigan by Eileen's childhood friend Dawn. Eileen's request, Natalie Merchant's song Carnival from the album Tiger Lily was played at her funeral. Eileen spent many hours listening to that album on death row. And that is the case of Eileen Warnos. Thank you all for joining me this week. I will be back in two weeks as this is now a bi-weekly show. And when I am back, I am covering one more serial killer. And then we are switching gears and changing topics. All my sources will be on my website. I noted this also on my Instagram about my second show, the new schedule, the whole shebang. You can also see pictures on my Instagram as well from this case. I also will have the documentary listed. I hope to continue this show and I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. So with that being said... God, I haven't said this in a minute. Safe journey. Keep walking in the light with love. Until next time, Ivana Estelle.